So if you noticed in your bulletin, um, it said uh, Shannon Fallon is speaking, and you thought that there would be a woman in the pulpit today. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, I am all man. Um, that's the second reason why I have the beard, um, is so that there's no confusion. Uh, the first reason is to uh, give me a little spiritual boost here. So, You tend to give uh, a little more credence to uh, a guy with a beard standing in the, uh, up front, I think. All right, so today... Um, we're going to be fo- focusing on the story of the boy Jesus in the temple uh, when Jesus was 12 years old. Uh, we'll be reading through Luke 2:41 through 52, and uh, I picked this particular story uh, because uh, I had a, a wonderful childhood, and I think back with much fondness on that time. Uh, and this is uh, the only story where Jesus is a youth. Um, And so in some ways, I kind of identify with it. Uh, But at the same time, uh, when we read about Jesus leaving his parents and uh, hanging out in the temple, um, it makes me wonder, what was going on there? Why did he do that? Um, So we'll kind of walk through that together. We'll delve into it um, here in just a minute. Uh, Before we get going, a few notes about this particular passage that I wanted to share with you. First one, um, it is the only inspired account of Jesus uh, between his birth and his ministry at 30. So we have a lot of stories of Jesus in his infancy as a uh, uh, toddler um, uh, in the Gospels. And, uh, of course, the bulk of the Gospels are about Jesus' ministry later on. This is the only one that fits in that gap, Jesus at 12. Uh, It's not because there aren't other stories. Uh, there's lots of other tales. Uh, there are certain manuscripts that are not part of the Bible that um, have added in stories about Jesus during this time period to help fill the gap. Um, you may have heard of some of them. Uh, there's some pretty wacky ones about um, him giving people leprosy and uh, diverting rivers and changing colors of cloths. Some cr- pretty crazy stuff. But those are tales. They're made up um, and... Uh, in large part to give more credence to the section of the Bible that just kind of looks like it glosses over that period of, of Jesus' life. Um, I think the exact opposite is true. I think that this particular story does perfectly in covering that whole age range for him. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that in here just in just a minute. Um, second point is it's Jesus' earliest recorded words. Uh, before he was an infant. This is the first time we hear Jesus speaking in his own voice and what he has to say. And I believe uh, that you'll see that he is consistent throughout his life, whether he's 12 or 30, uh, in how he speaks. And lastly, uh, this is the last mention in the Gospels of Joseph, of Jesus' father. Uh, Scholars believe that he died uh, when Jesus was still a young man. Um, hence the lack of information on him uh, following that. Uh, I wanted to throw this picture up there. This is a 
painting done by James Tissot. Uh, he's done quite a few of the Bible stories uh, in his artistic style. And uh, I really like this picture. It, it, to me, it encapsulates kind of the message we're going through today in uh, showing Jesus as a youth. Um, he was a kid. Uh, he was a normal boy, um, extraordinary in some ways, but um, going about his father's business. And uh, there's, of course, the obvious foreshadowing of the future that hold, the, um, what the future holds for him and the plan that he fulfills uh, on the cross. So with that in mind, uh, let's take a minute and just uh, start out with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we can go through it, um, see your truth written down for us, um, take those those nuggets, those uh, bits of wisdom, those bits of knowledge, and put them into practice in our lives, uh, that, that we have the Holy Spirit to help us uh, understand uh, and guide us through your word. Lord, this morning as, as we dig into the story about Jesus uh, as a young man, um, would you just help to give us insight into what was going on there, uh, help us to apply it to our lives, and uh, really be receptive to what you would want us to hear. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your presence here among us and give you free reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let's get to the text. Um, you can flip with me if you'd like. Luke two forty-one through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we're going to walk through, look at uh, this particular episode in Jesus' life. And uh, as we go, um, I just want to uh, point out a few things um, with these particular passages, uh, things of interest. So going back to uh, 41 through 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So Mary and Joseph were dedicated Jews. Um, At this particular time, uh, like a lot of Israel's history, uh, people had fallen away. There were some people that followed very closely with the law. But practicing Jews made sure to make a trip to Jerusalem 
for the holy days or at least the Passover if they were from outlying areas uh, every single year. Um, For practicing Jews, it was very important. And it says here that uh, his parents went to Jerusalem every year. We don't know if this is Jesus' first trip or um, if he'd been there many other times. But this particular one is of note. Um, And uh, again, uh, they were dedicated practicing Jews. Mary and Joseph raised Jesus responsibly. Uh, Joseph, as the head of the household, would have been charged with uh, bringing up Jesus with a knowledge and understanding of Scripture. Um, And very clearly, they took this to heart. Uh, Jesus has a love for Scripture, and um, Mary and Joseph have a um, desire to follow the law. Um, but uh, Joseph would have been in- intimately aware of Deuteronomy 6, where it explains that uh, man should uh, share God's commands with his children, with his, his sons and daughters, uh, every time he has the opportunity, when he gets up in the morning, when he walks along the road, when he goes to bed at night. Um, they're charged with, with putting God's word on the doorposts of their home uh, as a symbol to everybody, um, uh, Jews even take that one step further when it talks about uh, binding these words to their forehead um, and will actually put the scriptures in phylacteries and tie them to their forehead. But Deuteronomy 6 would have been uh, foremost in his mind as he was charged with bringing up Jesus with a knowledge and understanding of scripture. Mary and Joseph adhered to the law. Um, if you read back in the previous chapter, um, it says that Mary and Joseph did all that Mosaic law required of them from the very beginning of Jesus' infancy. Um, they took it very seriously. They loved the law. They lived the law. Verses 43 through 47. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This wasn't a home alone incident. This wasn't a accident. Um, Jesus didn't stop to tie his shoe, look up, and all of a sudden his parents weren't there, and so he decided to just stay put. Um, Jesus stayed willingly in Jerusalem. He chose to be where he was. It says he stayed behind. It was a willful act. Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus was sinless. Um, and on the first glance, you think, well, this kid chose to stay behind. Obviously, he's disobeying his parents. He's got some ulterior motive here. Why would he do that? That's, that's wrong. Um, but we know he wasn't sinful. So there's got to be something else important going on here. None other purpose. 
We look at Mary and Joseph's reaction when they discovered him gone. And I think they reacted as any other parent would. Uh, It doesn't say in the text, but you can imagine the words that they shared, uh, the fright that they had. Uh, If you're a parent, one of your greatest fears is losing your child, having your child kidnapped or be in harm's way somewhere where you can't help. Um, I'm sure that there were some unkind words exchanged. I thought you were watching him. It was, it was, I told you he was going to be over. I don't know, maybe that doesn't happen in your family. <laughs> but when the blame game was over, um, they started doing a methodical search for him. And I, I don't know, I've had, I've had nightmares about having my kids be taken and it, I mean, it scares me to the core. And I'm sure that it's no different for them. It's one of the worst situations a parent can imagine. They've looked around for him. They think he's with the relatives. They've already traveled a day out of Jerusalem, and he's nowhere to be found. Did he get separated from the group and caught by a wild animal? Is he hurt somewhere? Is he laying in a ditch on the side of the road? You can imagine um, what they thought they didn't know the rest of the context that we have. And so they're on a manhunt here. Where would he be? Where would he have gone? They make it all the way back into Jerusalem and still no sign of him. And you know that every step of the way, they're thinking, you know, more and more, are we ever going to find him? They get to Jerusalem and and they they look in all the places where a youth of that age might be. Um, you know, is he at the chariot stalls checking out the lower lowrider chariots with the big 22-inch wheels on them? Um, is he at the food stand? Um, you know, is he with people we stayed with in Jerusalem? Where could he be? I'm sure that at the forefront of their mind was the episode where the angel appeared to Mary and told her at the very beginning... Um, that she was favored by God to raise his only son. Just think, like, oh, crud, I just <laughs> lost him. <laughs> There's obviously a level of trust there, too, with Jesus, that they could go a whole day knowing that he's just fine, whether he's with relatives, whether he's with the other parent, that he would be okay that way. And that probably even added more to their fears, that they trusted that much, and now this has happened, they've lost them. Where would a kid be of that age in a big city like that? Well, of course, he's in the temple working, you know, learning, right? That's where your kids would be. They get separated, they go right to school, right to church, They've checked everywhere. They went to the temple, maybe to pray, maybe to, to seek God. And there's Jesus. Now, the Pharisees would, would come out on um, the temple steps on the side of the temple every day and teach, uh, teach anybody that wanted to come. And they would talk with um, the people, uh, talk about scripture, um, share ideas, have discussions and conversation and they come up, and there's Jesus. 
again, let's think about the reality of the situation. Um, sorry, I didn't do that. Um, Jesus didn't just accidentally end up at the temple, you know. He wasn't wandering along and, oh, hey, look. He didn't just happen to show up at the temple. He was there. Um, He wanted to be there. Uh, He was there for a purpose. But he was there for three days while they searched for him. What did he do? How did he eat? Where did he sleep? They don't stay there 24-7. Where did he go to the bathroom? I'm sure he probably figured that out. But he had to have stayed somewhere. He had to have ate something. He had to have had a purpose. He had to have a plan. And hopefully we'll discover that what that is as we go. One of the things that strikes me the most about this particular story um, is the way that Jesus is learning. He's sitting with the teachers. He's not preaching to them. He's listening to them and asking them questions. And this starts to kind of boggle my mind. I I have a hard time grasping this um, because I understand and know that Jesus is God, that he is part of the Trinity. He is fully God. But how can he be fully God and not be omniscient? God is omniscient. God knows everything. Um, God has some amazing qualities He's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's everlasting, he's omniscient. How does Jesus not know? How does he need to ask, why does he need to ask questions? And it says he grew in knowledge and understanding. That, that, to me, that, that boggles my mind. Um, how do you fit a God that is so immense into a 12-year-old boy. To me, that's even harder than, than an infant because in an infant, you have a certain level of innocence. But with a 12-year-old boy, have you been around 12-year-old boys? They're crazy. So how do you get all of those things in there? And how is it that Jesus learned? Well, Jesus had depth of maturity, but he didn't have omniscience. How is that possible? Philippians 2, 6 through 7 says this, talking about Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. Another way to translate that is that he set aside some of the aspects of his godhood. In order to fulfill God's plan of salvation and redemption, he limited himself. Um, John Piper puts it in a way that uh, really helps me understand, and I'll read it to you here. It says, The incarnate Christ was able somehow to bracket or limit the actual exercise of his divine powers so that he had the personality of God, basically the motives and will of God, but the powers of knowing all 
and the infinite strength of God, he somehow restrained. They were his potentially, and thus he was God. But he surrendered their use absolutely, and so he was man. He emptied himself. He took the form of his servant and set aside those aspects of his godhood. And so he learned. He needed to learn. He needed to grow. When I think of all of those things that God is um, and his choice of setting aside those aspects of himself um, and confining himself to a corrupt body, to a finite body in a corrupted world, a world that's been affected by sin, it, it just boggles my mind. And to me, it's no wonder that the teachers of the law and Mary and Joseph were amazed when they saw him. Um, they were surprised by his maturity and his depth because um, they were experiencing this unique individual for the first time. Uh, I think it's also well worth noting that Jesus had a hunger for the teaching and for the law. Uh, he was there for a purpose. He was there to seek God. He was there to learn. Uh, later on in Jesus' life, he was accused of violating the law. He was accused of wanting to replace the law, of overthrowing the law. But he got this from his parents. He loved the law. He loved God's word. He loved the scriptures. He didn't come, as people suggested, to violate the law or to replace it. Matthew five seventeen, Jesus' own words. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he didn't replace these things. He didn't violate them. Uh, he came to fulfill the law. So he loved the law. He loved God's word and was there to learn it. Moving on, verses 48 through 50. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. If you're like me and you read this, the first question is, okay, why? Why did he do this? Mary asked that same question. Son, why have you treated us so? Now, tone is an important thing. And oftentimes as we read through the Bible, we read it mild and mellow, because that's how Jesus was. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and mother, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. How would you be if you came upon your child who has willfully wandered away, done something that has freaked you out to no end, and you come upon them, and there they are, hanging out and talking? You're like, Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I don't know that I would wait until I got up to him before I said, Hey, what the heck are you doing? 
your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. <laughs> you know, imagine the mingled relief and the question of, what are you thinking? Um, the way we phrase questions have real power. There's, there's often more to a question than just the words themselves. If you don't believe me, um, turn to your spouse or somebody that you love or somebody you're with right now and ask, and ask them this. Is that what you're wearing today? <laughs> Simple question, but there's a lot of meaning behind that. Mary asked, son, why have you treated us so? Now, she's getting at something that I think parents often do. I do this. I can walk in into our living room, and there is inevitably a pile of something. You name it. Even, even your worst thoughts right now probably has, has happened. And my first question to my kids is, why did you do that? Now, I'm not asking them the real question that I'm asking them, right? I want them to say, well, Dad, I was irresponsible and lazy, um, and I didn't follow your instruction in trying to keep things clean that's never going to happen in a million years, right? So I'm not asking, why did you do that? I'm asking, why did you do that to me? Mary's question is the same. But we as people do that, don't we? When we engage in questioning, in questioning God, um, don't we kind of go that self-serving route that why did you do this to me? Or maybe it's why didn't you do this for me? I think even if you don't have kids, we can agree the type of questioning we tend to engage in is completely self-serving. Now there's a contrasted picture here. We have Jesus actively seeking wisdom and knowledge. He's sitting in front of the Pharisees and he's quizzing them, asking questions. And what's he trying to get at? He's trying to get at a deeper understanding of God's word, who he is, and how he fits into that. Is that how we question God? In some of those situations that we find ourselves in, maybe difficult situations, do we go to God seeking wisdom and knowledge about our situation so that we can follow him better? Or do we pose the questions the way we do to help reassert our own control? Do we question to gain a better understanding of how we can obediently follow or do we question to justify a selfish pattern? I think more often we tend to question God in a way that asserts our own will, our own feelings, and our own importance beyond any real understanding. When we come to God in a difficult situation, 
We want to know what Mary wants to know. Why did you do this to me? Or why didn't you do this for me? Depending on the situation. And Jesus' answer is absolutely consistent with every other interaction that he has in the Bible with all of his answers to questions. And in this, he doesn't really answer the question. Um, Not only that, he doesn't even give an answer. He asks another question. Didn't you know? Jesus' divinity shows in the way he cuts to the chase in his response. And he points out that they knew or had access to the answer of where he was all along. Again, in our questioning with God, um, isn't that true too? When we ask that question, why have you done this to me? Why did you let this happen to me? Don't we kind of already know the answer? Now, again, you look at it and you might think, well, you know, if this was any other kid, it would, it would really seem like sarcasm here. Um, Why are you looking for me? Don't you know I'm going to be in my father's house? You know, I, I picture my own kids saying it that way. Uh, but Jesus is way too straightforward, um, way too honest uh, for this to be a glib, sarcastic answer. Um, in his answer, he makes us aware that he knows in his core who he is and who his father is. Again, um, looking at this from Joseph's point of view, Joseph has probably scheduled things when he gets back to Nazareth uh, that he needs to do. He's a working man, uh, probably not very wealthy. Um, He probably had orders to fill, things to build, um, furniture to finish perhaps. He's lost all that time searching for his son and when they find Jesus, he says, don't you, don't you know that I'm... No? He says, Where, why were you looking for me? Don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Jews at the time preferred to say our father when they talked about God. Uh, As God's people, he was our father. Jesus takes it and makes it intimate and says, my father. Another way of putting it too, um, when it talks about being in my father's house, another translation is about my father's business. And it says his parents didn't really understand his answer. You know, Joseph may have been there and said, He said, I'm about my father's business. He's like, yeah, it's back in Nazareth. Let's go. But he's talking about 
God's business. He's talking about God as his father. And I don't think that he intends to diminish Joseph in any way. But again, he knows in his core who his father is. Move on real quick. Verse 51 and 52. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So, why did he do it? Why did he choose this way of the teaching that he needed going about that. Uh, I'm going to share with you my thoughts on it. First is that Jesus was putting on display God's authority structure. Uh, Jesus submitted to God first and foremost. And then he submitted to his parents. Um, He acknowledged and followed God's plan for submission. And he demonstrated to everybody there, Joseph, Mary, his family that may have been, may have tagged along, uh, the Pharisees, he demonstrated to everybody there that he was going to submit to God first and then his parents. Um, When we're talking about submission, let's go back for a second to Philippians 2.6 where it says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And though he was God, he was in the form of God and he has all the authority of God within him. He didn't supersede God's will. He still put himself under God's authority. He came as a servant in God's plan. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or sought after. And he did honor the commandment to honor his father and mother. And it says that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So he still did follow Mary and Joseph in their demands and their asks and requests of him. But he did follow God first and foremost. And I think that that was um, the pattern that he wanted to impart on us. Second thing I think is going on is Jesus patterned the operating principles for the rest of his life. Uh, Jesus came as a servant. He came to perform a selfless, humbling, and difficult work because it was the Father's plan. Knowing what God had in store for him, um, he still 
totally trusted God. He trusted in God's will more so than his own. In Matthew 26, 39, uh, the night before Jesus died, uh, it says this about him. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. For Jesus, it didn't matter if he had another plan or if his plan was to do what God wanted. He was going to give up any will that he had to follow the Father's will. Again, Jesus is fully God. And as we see in Revelation, and we will see when Jesus returns, he has every right to authority over us. And he comes in authority. But here, he's come as a servant. So in spite of his right of authority, he gave it up because of his faith in the Father and because it was so complete. He had total trust in God's will. And lastly, I think that he came as a foreshadowing of what, to, what was to come. So Jesus was always about his Father's business. Even when it caused grief, even when it cost him significantly, cost him everything. And even when it separated him from those he loved, he was willing to do it. Even to death on the cross. There's another time, this same festival, Passover festival, years, years ahead, where after his time on the cross, he wasn't to be found for three days because he was all about his father's business. He came to live out that hierarchy of will. So what does this mean for us? Just a couple questions for you. Based on our, our reading, um, Mary and Joseph sought Jesus and looked all over for him. Do we know where to, where to find Jesus when we seek him? Do we know where to seek Jesus? Do we look in all the wrong places for validation, for answers to our dilemmas, the problems that we face? Do we find them, do we seek them in music, in our friends, in our fantasy life, in our thought life, uh, rely on our experiences? Or do we go to the source of truth and knowledge? Uh, and do we go to the source of truth and knowledge, scripture, uh, even when it's something you don't really want to hear? I, I have experienced scripture, uh, the sufficiency of scripture, and how it is able to deal with any issue that I face. Now again, my kids would say, yeah, it doesn't talk about cell phones in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it does talk about communication, about how we deal with each other. Um, I, I believe su Scripture is sufficient to deal with any issue we're facing and has the answers we need. 
So do you know where to seek Jesus? Second question. How do we present our questions to God? We've had those two pictures. Jesus seeking knowledge and wisdom so that he can better understand God, God's will, and be obedient to him. And we have Mary's question. Why did you do this to me? How do we present our questions to God? Do we seek wisdom? And do we value the humble way we're directed to live according to God? Or is our interest in presenting our petitions and prayers purely from our own motives and selfishness? Are we humbly seeking wisdom or are we self-interested and demanding? And I think that goes to a bigger issue. Do we have an authority issue with God? Do we acknowledge him as the authority in our lives, uh, first and foremost? Or do we have an authority issue with people he's put over us? I've got bad news for you. We've all been placed under authority. Unless you lead a charmed life, Sorry, the microphone's gone. <laughs> Is it? The beard just springs it right off. Yeah. Unless you lead a charmed life, um, you're going to be subject to somebody else's authority, another person's authority. And we all fall under the authority of God. Who are you under, under, whose authority are you under? And how do you respond to him? Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Jesus trusted God enough to submit to his authority and his will in everything. Do you trust those that you're supposed to be under the authority of? And let me ask you this. If we can't respect the lesser authorities over us, your boss, your spouse, your parents, if you can't respect those lesser authorities, how in the world can you honor God's ultimate authority over us. We sing about God as our king. What king would ever put up with subjects that said, yeah, I don't really like that statute and I'm not going to follow what you're commanding? That doesn't usually go over very well. A king demands honor and respect and it's given. For me, I I've have and have had many authority issues. Um, my authority issues didn't look, at least with my parents, didn't look like outward rebellion. They didn't look like uh, the kid that tells his parents off and does his own thing. Uh, I looked submissive, but in my heart, I was not at all. 
I vowed never to do the things my parents did because I resented the things that they asked of me. When it came to submitting to God, it was much the same thing. I didn't want to go to a church. I didn't want to be around church people. Uh, I certainly didn't want to work for a church. And I told God, I will never do that. I couldn't respect the lesser authorities in my life, and I certainly wasn't going to do it with God. Fortunately, God is a gracious God and can change people. And it took giving up my own will to acknowledge God's authority. And it's not easy. Um, One illustration, one picture that uh, really stands out to me of giving up our own will and and, uh, acknowledging God's authority uh, at uh, youth camp this year um, and last year as well, you paddle out in a canoe out to this rock cliff. And it's not a huge rock cliff. When you're sitting at the bottom of it, it doesn't look that big. But when you get up on top of it, it looks like you're 40 feet in the air. Um, and the idea is to jump off into the water and it's fun. Everybody is enjoying it and inside, I don't want to do that. I don't know what's going to happen if I jump off. You know, what if I misstep? What if there's a rock there? Um, I hate cold water. I hate dirty lake water. There's all kinds of reasons not to do it that I can talk myself out of. And it's giving up my own will and saying, okay, I'm going to do it. And you can tell yourself that and say it out loud. Ready, one, two, three, go. Ready, one, two, three, go again. Okay, this time for real. Um, But until you actually step off and fall, um, you're not doing it. Um, And and that sensation, that split second before you hit the water of knowing there is nothing I can do to change the outcome right now. That is truly giving up our own will. And with God, I think it is just like that. It's a matter of stepping out and acknowledging that you trust him. Last question. And the worship team can come on up. Are we all about our Father's business before everything else? Jesus put God first and foremost above his own parents, his own beloved. Do we do the same thing? What is it that we spend our time, our energy, our money on? Where, where are we directed? Are we willing to make God absolutely number one in our lives? And if you did, what would that look like? If you surrendered to God's will in the way you worshiped, if you surrendered to what God has asked for uh, from us in the area of forgiveness, forgiving others, if you surrendered to God's way of doing things when it comes to loving other people, especially the unlovable, if you really bought into what he says about grace 
and offering grace and mercy, what would that look like? What would people call you? What would your coworkers say if you treated them that way? How would your neighbors see you if you sought God before everything, even your own loved ones? And how would your relationships with your loved ones look if you put God first and we're all about God's business before everything else. I would challenge you to ponder and pray about those questions and see, do you have an authority issue with God? Are you willing to be all about God's business?